نيسان داس وعمري 29 سنه وانا من سوريا حاليا انا مقيمه في مدينه الميره في هولندا Martial arts have been around for ages and have developed and expanded throughout many parts of the world. While they were created for combat and self-defense, they promote mindfulness, awareness, self-discipline, focus, and confidence. And to be honest, many of us have probably heard of karate thanks to Mr. Miyagi in the Karate Kid movies. While karate is likely the most well-known form of martial arts in the U.S., many other forms have grown in popularity as well. They've even made their way into the Olympics and Paralympics. Sports like Taekwondo, boxing, and Judo. So Judo is a young sport compared to other sports like soccer or tennis and so on, because it was invented in 1882 in Japan. And then, of course, later on, it became a sport, an Olympic sport. It's, it's a simple sport. The objective is to throw your opponent on his back. Uh, that's to win a, a fight, uh, a contest. There are different techniques to do it. Seems easy enough, right? Yeah, you go for it. And of course, in addition to learning technique, judo imparts values. Nicholas Mesner is a part of the International Judo Federation and director for the Judo for Peace program. He spearheads efforts with multiple refugee camps around the world that seek to share the lessons of this important sport. The idea is to use our values, which are based on friendship, honor, modesty, self-control, etc., etc., the moral uh, values of judo, and to use that to help people to gain, again, self-confidence, teach them again to live together, to respect each other. And, uh, and it's still a really active and vivid activity to develop those social skills and uh, that can help to develop the body, but also the mind and to help people become better citizens. Of the 49 International Olympic Committee or IOC refugee scholarship recipients, 16 specialize in a martial art, two of them specifically in judo. One of those two is Syrian refugee Sanda Aldas. My name is Sanda Aldas and I'm uh, 30 years old. I'm a married uh, woman who has three kids and living in Almira in a city named Almira in the Netherlands. Sanda has been diligently training in the Netherlands, trying to secure her spot on the IOC Olympic refugee team for Tokyo. She's the current IOC refugee athlete scholarship holder, the elite group amongst which the 2021 refugee team will be selected. Because of COVID-19, the qualifications have yet to take place. Judo is the sport she's loved and trained in for many years. I used to do uh, basketball when I was a small kid. And the club where we used to do basketball, I've heard a lot of noises in the gym inside. So I just went there to see what's going on. And then I saw people who were doing judo. And oh, I went home and told mommy, like, mom, I want to do also judo. And she said, yes, okay, it's better than playing in the street or in the garden. Yeah, so I went there and I just begun. And then I got like into the game. And since then, I'm, I'm doing it. Sanda is a mom of three. And her husband, Fadi Darwish, is also an exceptional judoka, a.k.a. a judo athlete, someone who practices judo. We used to play in the same team. And then back in Syria, they selected him to be a national coach of Syria, of the Syrian team. And when we came here, went back to training and he's my coach. So he understands the whole situation. He knows how hard to make a family and run after the kids and make lunch and et cetera. So, and also go to training. So he's a huge support for me here. If it was alone back to me, I, I wouldn't do it because it's so hard to comparing between, between them. But because I have him, it's, it's much easier. 
Prior to fleeing, Sanda had been a consistent member of the Syrian judo national team. So when she and her husband made it to the Netherlands, they were eager to connect with the International Judo Federation. In a world of change and unknowns, judo was their constant, their rock. Sanda is the epitome of resilience, having overcome obstacles that many of us couldn't even dream up in our worst nightmares. She's illustrated continuous courage and determination in the face of unspeakable tragedy. I'm proud of myself. I'm happy for myself because not all the countries in the Middle East, but in general, like uh, a woman is not allowed to do a lot of sport. So to reach this this high level is is a big thing for me. It's just a, a dream first coming true, you know, like we're going to participate in the Olympics. I wouldn't maybe got this chance if I were back in my country. So this is huge for me. For us as, as refugees, it's a huge thing because we've got the opportunity to participate in a huge event like any other team, you know? Also, people can look and see hope, especially women. You know? They can look to you like, if they made it, then we can make it. Sanda lived in a refugee camp in the Netherlands for almost nine months, trying to secure refugee status for herself, her husband, and her two-year-old son who remained in Syria. I wasn't familiar with the process for securing refugee status. So I spoke with Renee Wolforth, who told me about it. Renee has dedicated her life to working with refugees in both the Middle East and Africa. Even though you're technically a refugee, as soon as you cross that border, if you have a well-founded fear of persecution on one of the five grounds, still for resettlement purposes. So in order to go to a third country or to be officially uh, recognized as a refugee, go through the refugee status determination process, still you have the right to protection while you're uh, applying for asylum within, within the country. But often if you're coming to the US, for instance, it doesn't matter if you're coming from a peaceful country, if you personally have a well-founded fear of persecution, like um, your sexual orientation or your political opinion, or on the basis of your sex, you have to, you may be able to get refugee status. The men and women participating on the refugee Olympic team are funded by scholarships provided by the IOC. Current scholarship recipients consist of individuals from 11 countries who compete in a range of events boxing, cycling, swimming, athletics, and judo, to name a few. During the opening ceremony, these athletes carry the Olympic flag, holding their heads high because, yes, while it's true that every single Olympic and Paralympic athlete has had to show immense resilience, perseverance, and hard work, the members of the refugee team have endured things that many of us will just likely never understand. We feel like uh, the the team, the judo team we are uh, in, it's uh, we are people from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Syria, so it's big. And we feel like a family, you know. Maybe we all went through the same circumstances, the same suffering. We went through terrible times. A lot of uh, dear people we know died without a reason to die. We're just good people, like everyone but we just had bad times and we're trying our best to begin in life uh, 
since since zero you know and we have to build everything now again and we're proud about it because not everybody got the chance to to live or to start all over again so we're blessed we're happy about it to say the least sonda's outlook is deeply inspiring and i greatly admire her ability to stay positive despite the extreme hardships she's overcome but things aren't exactly a walk in the park for her, even though she's been able to start a new life in the Netherlands. There are a ton of challenges that come with being a refugee athlete. The dire need to obtain sponsorships given the lack of national funding. The constant battle to disprove assumptions and stereotypes about being a refugee. And specifically for Sonda, balancing training and motherhood for her three children. especially in the summer and because of covid-19 and the kids had to stay home because no schools yeah it's it's a difficult thing you know motherhood without sport is a is a difficult thing to do so how is with sport it's it's so it's so hard it's not easy to find a sponsor to you know like all other teams have someone to who help them finding a good place to train and finding a, supporting them like myself i need let's say a babysitter it's not that easy to find a babysitter every day and it's cost a fortune <laughs> so it's not the easiest thing you know but if you had a sponsor then a lot of things went went easier and uh, it's just small things but when you do it every day every day you feel like something is missing i don't know how to explain it exactly but uh, it's a little bit uh, hard to stay without a sponsor as i've told you refugee you think like uh, are not educated as i told you not educated people or people look not here in the netherlands but in general looked at us like they are refugees you know but uh, not only us we know a lot of families here not all also in, in sport in in all of other sections in life who are refugees and worked so hard on themselves and now they are proud of being refugees like also myself like i'm i'm happy to tell people i'm a refugee to i wouldn't got this chance to talk to people or tell them about refugees if i wasn't myself a refugee or people look on news and see okay refugees they just change the channel you know they don't want to look at them but when you in my position when you are in my position you have the capability to tell people like about refugees then that's a good thing to experience the devastation she witnessed in Syria start over in a new country with a family and once again globally reach the top level of judo is a truly unfathomable accomplishment it's truly an honor to be able to share Sonda's story because she reminded me that this life isn't a dress rehearsal for many of us myself included who haven't experienced similar hardships The last few months have made it way too easy to become negative. Despite everything Sonda has gone through, positivity absolutely radiates from her. My conclusion? I have no excuse. If you're familiar at all with the Syrian refugee experience, you're probably in awe of how someone who's gone through so much suffering can maintain such a positive attitude. If you're not familiar with the Syrian crisis, some context may be helpful. Renee was able to weigh in on how Syria got to where it is today. And basically it started out with protests by civilians against different issues with uh within Syria 
against the government, so policies of the government or the way the government was treating people. And what happened was that after uh, a bit of time, the government started retaliating against the, the protesters and started throwing people in jail and detaining them and basically trying to clamp down on the, the protests that were happening there. And this, this created what they call the rebel group, but basically an anti-regime group that, that started within the country. Then the government was going after them. And then what happened was is that the, the conflict between people who were protesting against the government and government policies became complicated by the political involvement of a bunch of different countries, including Turkey, the U.S., etc. I wanted to be most respectful of Sanda's boundaries and not ask her to relive the horrors she witnessed. Another Syrian refugee, Jaktar Mohammed, was eager to communicate his experiences as he fervently believes that sharing what happened in his country arms more people with the tools to choose peace. For those listening who may not be as familiar with what's been going on in Syria, his story provides context on the Syrian experience. My name is Jaktar Mohammed. I'm a Syrian, Kurdish Syrian from Syria. I born in Damascus. Beginning of the 2011, I was attending my high school. Everything was cool until the conflict start. We needed to just get out from that city. The first thing we do, I send all my family, they are all of them sisters. I have seven sisters. With my parents, they are old. So I send all of them and I decide to stay just to protect the house, you know, like we have all of houses there. I stayed for a one month in a city that's named Supaina, Spain. Uh, and that ma- month, everything was cut. No electricity, no food, no water, no education. Nothing can enter the city for a month. You know, like in the neighborhood, you always there is like a noisy people, the not former people. I saw all of them with arms, and and like in the neighborhoods, like a street, so. In each street, that like checkpoints, checking the 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 ID of you, if you are Muslim or if you are Shia or if you are Kurdish. So they was like starting the the conflict there because they decide to divide the people, divide the population in the, in my city. And during this month, I saw people die. I participate in the medical stuff. I didn't have never experience, and I saw a lot of case children, mothers, uh, young people, no food, nothing. I lost my friend during this month. I lost him and we was walking. We was trying to go to our high school. You know, we just graduated from high school and it was like time to register in the university. It's like work that in Syria. We was trying to just, you know, the checkpoint of the government was there and all the city and all the army group was behind. We just crossed all of them. We just decided to get out to see my family because my mom was sorry about me and also to just register my education because we were I, I, I love education like and they killed him they killed him like he was walking like that and a sniper in his head and only thing I remember I just I, I didn't run I couldn't run because I didn't I couldn't lift him behind me I put him in my arm like that and I went with his parent and this was the first month of my experience in the war in Syria. Jack continued to experience more loss, more friends who were killed. 
And his mom, seeing the effects this was having on him, told him to flee. And she told me, get out from this country. To where? To Kurdistan, Iraq. My family, we went together to Iraq. And in Iraq, it was like other reality, camps, tents, a small tents from UNCR that's it's enough for one, two person. We lived 10 people there. Seven sister, me, my parents, we bowed for the corruption in that city. We bowed that UNCR tent, $225. I wasn't in the age 19, 20, but like of the experience I had, I was like 25, 28, 30. And that time, I lost the hope. I lost the hope. Only thing I just do work, any kind of work to support food for my family. It was to move stuff. It was working as a cleaning person, cleaning the street. But I didn't feel the, the hope again. Only thing I was checking every day, every morning when I went to the work, seeing the children and looking to myself. Okay, I was, I was 19, 20. And this children is four, so his case is more worse than me. So I start play with them. I start giving activity, teach him like English, uh, math, math uh, teach him physics, chemistry, and I start like having the hope. Okay, I'm doing something. I'm just you say drawing a, a smile on their face. So for me in my case, I receive a lot of support to be like to be a migrant or to be a refugee. I receive a lot of hope, uh, uh, help, but also I receive the bad things. I'm a refugee, I have like a, I'm a terrorist, and I'm a bad, like, yeah, I received both of them, but the majority of my experience, it was very good. I was humbled by Jackdar's willingness to share his experience, as it provided me with deeper admiration for refugees everywhere. Now, think about the worst thing that has ever happened in your entire life. Okay, now put yourself out there and tell your story to some random chick from Havid or whatever they say, guts and all. Because that's what Jackdar did for our benefit. And I was embarrassed to admit that I hadn't previously been aware that there even was a refugee Olympic team. So I wanted to take a step back to better understand. Clearly, I was out of the loop. I sat down with Anne-Sophie Thilo former Olympics with Sailor, and the current press attaché for the refugee team. She works one-on-one with all the refugee scholarship recipients. I asked her about the history of the team. After the major, I would say, refugee crisis in 2014-15, the IOC president decided to um, give a chance to the ones that could not compete at the Olympic Games because they had to uh, flee their country. So um, in Rio, it was, it was 10 athletes actually uh, competing for the first time as the IOC Refugee Olympic team. I was still a bit perplexed about how it worked and how the athletes qualified and for whom they competed, given that each refugee lived in a different country. It has to be uh, simply because those athletes, because they had to flee, couldn't train couldn't compete, didn't have access to uh, facilities, didn't have access to uh, the competitions. So we have to be flexible on that. Uh, Selection will be made in 2021. (laughs) I would say spring, June, something like this. And obviously it won't be the same criteria uh, only as for the athletes competing for, yeah, to get a ticket for the national team. But this really also depends on 
each country. So the qualification won't be the same for an American athlete than a Swiss athlete or an Italian athlete. In my privileged experience, I had seen how sport had the ability to unify and heal divides, connect individuals and communities. That said, when speaking with Sanda, I could tell there was something truly special about being a refugee team hopeful. I asked Anne-Sophie what being a part of this team meant. There is a, a, a big dimension of solidarity, you know, of uh, being together, working together, helping each other, of hope, uh, giving hope to all the refugees around the world that they can still believe in their dreams, even though sometimes they had terrible journeys and they lost everything in their home country. So um, I would say, yeah, that's uh, that's the big, two big dimensions for, for this team to act as a symbol of, uh, of hope, of peace and uh, yeah, solidarity. She's way more than a symbol. She is living proof. Sandra promotes peace, positivity and hope. Just please look to peace and look after peace and try to make peace in the world because the world is a nice place and we deserve to live on a nice planet with, with no war and with people who are happy, not upset and following their dreams. Yeah, in general, try to look to the positive part in, in, the, in life. Life is so short to, to feel sad and stay, stay doing nothing, just feel the life. If you've been inspired and want to support Sanda or athletes like Sanda, there are two ways you can help. One, be a private sponsor for a refugee athlete. Look up the Olympic refugee team to identify an athlete from your country, someone who plays the sport you're passionate about, or frankly, someone whose profile you like. Reach out to pressoffice at olympic.org to help make one or more of these athletes' dreams possible. Two, the IOC has created the Olympic Refugee Foundation, whose mission is to give access to safe sports and facilities to displaced refugees around the world. Supporting this organization allows for safe, basic, and accessible sports facilities to be placed in areas with large migrant populations to have the outlet to foster mental and physical health through sport. To learn more about the foundation, you can visit olympic.org backslash olympic-refugee-foundation. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Flame Bears. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. In our next episode, we'll be hearing from Manasi Joshi, Indian Paralympic badminton star. Until next time. Once again, this podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Harvard Kennedy School's Women in Public Policy Program Summer Internship Grant, along with my two fantastic advisors, Janina Metsuzeski and Kesley Hong. Thanks for taking a chance on me.